Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Power does have to be redeemed. It, we can't just grab it and use it. Um, not on this side of the fall. We have to go through a process of examining our own idolatries, our own participation in injustice, and by the way, not just examining, but actually being rescued from our slavery to those things. Uh, because actually the perpetrators of injustice are just as enslaved in a way by an unjust system as the victims. Uh, we're all stuck. And the great good news of the gospel is Jesus has rescued us, has redeemed us from that, and now gives us proper power, which is authority and vulnerability together, actually. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. You're listening to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and today I'm speaking with Andy Crouch in the second of a two-part conversation. Along with being the executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy is the author of three books, including Playing God, Culture Making, and his most recent book, Strong and Weak, which we've been discussing in this interview. In part two, we continue to explore this paradox between what we're meant to be and how far we are from what we're meant to be, and all that stands in the way. So with no further ado, let's jump into part two of my conversation with Andy Crouch. Money is a good thing. It's a medium of assessing, assigning, and exchanging value. And and we need to be able to assess, assign, and exchange value. Uh, and it, it corresponds it, at its best to real wealth, that is real goodness in the world. But it's also the most powerful idol. If you start thinking, if I have enough money, I'll have all the authority I want and none of the vulnerability I fear, uh, that good thing will become for you or perhaps for a whole society that builds itself around this, um, an idol that initially seems to do pretty well. Like initially you can get a lot of that authority, that authority that you want, but over time it's going to start taking over your life and we become enslaved to these things. Uh, and they, they start to drive us and they deliver less and less of what they promise. So the best, the best idols in the sense of the idols that are most effective in our lives are actually things that start out being good. Um, but that we, we look to them for control and then they, they gradually suck us in, demand more and more, deliver less and less until eventually they demand everything and deliver nothing. Hmm. 
I've actually heard that quote attributed to you before, the ah. fact that they demand everything and deliver nothing, <laughs> that, addi- that addictions, because addictions and yep. are you, you, would you use uh, an idol and an addiction synonymously? I think addiction is a modern name for one very powerful kind of idol. Yeah. And addictions are in some ways, you know, we look around us and we don't see, we think we don't have idols. We think, well, we're kind of a secular culture. We don't have little figurines, right? Uh, but how do we have addictions? And they serve the exact same function. Um, yeah. And by the way, it, this idea for me uh, came from a psychiatrist named Jeffrey Sadenover. And, oh, sure. And he sure. is the one who I actually got that idea from. So I always try to credit him because I get credited for it. But I got that idea that delivers less and less while demanding more and more from Jeffrey Sadenover. Uh, his book, The Feathers of the Skylark, exactly. was foundational to my book. And I actually tell the story, ah. The Feathers of the Skylark, in the beginning of my book. And it so. is precisely a story of addiction, but also of idolatry. And right. it's exactly where I got the you, idea to. You lose your feathers and you can't fly anymore. <laughs> yes, yes. Back to authority and vulnerability, a middle or upper middle class evangelical might, we might gravitate toward thinking about that we have authority and we need to learn how to become vulnerable, but you make a point in all of your writing of kind of having a heart and a voice for the oppressed, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the poor. And so there there are people among us, and of course throughout the world and developing nations and, and just down the block sometimes, that don't have any authority. And they're Absolutely. very vulnerable. So it's important to, to look at both sides of this equation. Can you talk about those who have vulnerability but no authority, and then those with authority, and how they can become vulnerable? Yes. Well, in fact, on a moment's reflection, we realize that vulnerability without authority is far more common in the human story than authority without vulnerability. So a few of us get to perch in this uh temporary location of having a lot of authority and having our risks kind of minimized though that's not going to last even for us who have access to it but many many human beings have never experienced that at all and so i would say i mean how many uh, seven billion human beings on this planet today probably five and a half every day their whole lives their vulnerability far outweighs their authority and this is not how it's meant to be. This is actually the deepest indication that something has gone wrong because the world is full of these uh, people, uh, persons who should be bearing the image of God, who should be bringing the flourishing we were talking about at the beginning. They're meant to bring that in their families, in their neighborhoods, their nations, the environment they live in. And they're frustrated and, and unable to do that. Because they're just trying to survive. They are reduced to mere survival, which is what other creatures do. But human beings were never meant to be mere survivors. We're meant to transform the world in in profound ways through our creativity, through our capacity for love. And when you are reduced to just surviving, uh, that that is the other major distortion of the image of God, actually. So on the one hand, the image of God is lost in the world because there are all these idols in the world that promise us things God never promised and don't deliver, (laughs) whereas God promises and delivers. But then the other way the, uh, the image is lost is there are all these image bearers who are reduced to a life that doesn't allow them to uh, express the image of God. Um, and the reason is that they are caught in systems of injustice, which allow a few people to have authority without vulnerability at the expense of others, many others, having vulnerability without authority. So the really um, kind of uh, painful reality is that 
to the extent that you allow yourself to just sort of stay in a system that gives you authority without vulnerability, I think that's always purchased at the price of other people having vulnerability without authority. Um, and that, that's what the Bible calls injustice. Um, and it takes very, um, very extreme forms, uh, in terms of exploitation, slavery, you know, the actual control of human beings and ownership of human beings, effective ownership of human beings. But it also takes more subtle forms. Um, because actually even in a system as small as like a family system, uh, if I, as the, the father or the husband in that system, um, seek to have authority without vulnerability. I will inevitably create a system if I have the power that, that reduces my wife, let's say, or my children to greater vulnerability. And, and I'll, I'll actually prevent them from having the authority that they were meant to have. And I will offload the vulnerability that I don't want onto them. Uh, and that on a large scale is what generates poverty in the world is what generates oppression in the world. It's that quest to live, uh, in a way we were never meant to live. As you're talking, I don't know if anyone's ever presented this idea to you, but it strikes me that this idea of authority and vulnerability, strong and weak, is almost like a hermeneutic. Hmm. It's, a, it's a lens that you have to approach the text of the story of God with each of those lenses in place, yeah. or you're going to get it wrong. Yes. Um, that you're going to uh, overemphasize God's justice and miss out on his mercy, or that, yes. you'll, that you'll overemphasize mercy and miss out on his heart for justice, and justice being something bigger than just you know, the satisfaction or, or punishment of sin. Right. And, and I would add, um, you, know, you were mentioning how uh, those of us who are kind of middle or professional class live with a lot of authority. There, there's, there's a corresponding fantasy that goes along with that, which is the idea that actually authority is a bad thing and I should get rid of it. And which so, is the theme of, of uh, playing God exact, in your book about power. Yes, exactly. And we, we look at people with a great deal of power and we think, oh, they're misusing their power. So really my dream would be that, that I should not have any authority. But that actually misreads Scripture just as much as omitting the vulnerability from the reading of Scripture because ultimately the Bible is about the proper use of authority and, and the flourishing that comes when we use authority. And I find, um, most of all among younger Christians, inevitably from fairly privileged backgrounds that they want, they want some kind of configuration of life in which they'll never have to have authority. And I'm like, well, that's not how God made us. We're meant to reign. We're meant to rule, have dominion. Some, some words that actually become uncomfortable uh, in the wake of the, the idolatry of the modern age that treated the world as a machine and exploited the world. We think, well, I, I don't know if we can trust human beings with dominion. Well, you can't unless they have gone through this repentance and restoration process and are now bearing the image of God again. Will you talk about this as it relates to women? Because in mm -hmm. Playing God, I thought this was an important story that you told. You have a friend uh, a female academic, and her perspective on power kind of took you off guard. Well, I, if I remember this particular story, it actually was someone who, who just could only see the damage that power had done. Yes. And so she said, I think all we can hope to do with power is limit its damage. But she herself is a person of great power. And the problem with um, seeing power as only negative uh, is that you end up not being able to see or use the power that you actually have. And this is especially an issue f for women sometimes, I think, because authority and vulnerability have been divided up 
in the human story unequally between men and women. And it's part of the curse that followed the original um, sort of declaration of independence from God and, and seeking of authority without vulnerability is that men ended up with unaccountable power and women ended up with profound vulnerability, not least in childbearing, but also in their relationship to men. And the truth is we are all made for both. Both men and women are made both to have authority and to have vulnerability. Um, but many women have experienced what unaccountable authority and unvulnerable authority can do. And they think, I don't want that kind of authority. But in fact, women as well as men are made to have authority. Uh, and that friend of mine um, was, she had it, but it was very hard for her to admit that she had it and to recognize that she had it um, because she was, for some good reasons, afraid of what authority can do. Is your book, Playing God, is a major theme about redeeming power? Yes, we can't. Uh, power does have to be redeemed. It, we can't just grab it and use it. Um, not on this side of the fall. We have to go through a process of examining our own idolatries, our own participation in injustice, and by the way, not just examining, but actually being rescued from our slavery to those things. Uh, because actually the perpetrators of injustice are just as enslaved in a way by an unjust system as the victims. Uh, we're all stuck. And the great good news of the gospel is Jesus has rescued us, has redeemed us from that, and now gives us proper power, which is authority and vulnerability together, actually. So we talked a little bit about those who are vulnerable without authority. How do people with authority get vulnerability? Mm. So here's the tricky thing. <laughs> uh, it, it, one word for it is privilege. Um, privilege is sort of the accumulation of authority without vulnerability that happens to me whether I want it to or not. So there are a lot of factors in my life, um, some of which came just with birth. So I have a blue passport that says United States of America on it. You wouldn't believe how much that insulates me. Both I can choose to live here, and even when I'm traveling abroad, I'm insulated from all kinds of risk just because I have that passport. I'm insulated from risk because I am six foot one inches tall and white and male, and people treat me differently all over the world and in, and in my own country. Then there are other things that have accumulated because I've done some work that other people found helpful. I've achieved a certain amount of success. And all of this is wrapped up in this package that any given day, any given moment gives me the option of avoiding vulnerability. Uh, so what I have to do is constantly be, be choosing more risk than I would naturally choose because I'm being insulated from risk that I would naturally be exposed to. Does that, that make makes, sense? Yeah. And I almost think of it as like um, uh, when you're when you're out sailing, if there's a wind um, and and it isn't blowing you the direction you want to go, you have to tack, and you actually have to take a different angle of approach to get to the place where you want to go. So for me, uh, as a United States citizen, white male, you know, reasonably tall, you know, all, all these things we could list. Um, I, I'm piling up authority, capacity to act, which is authority, all the time. And I'm having vulnerability kind of invisibly taken away from me all the time. So I need to concentrate a lot of my effort and attention on what's the risk I need to take. What's the exposure to vulnerability I need to embrace? And very little of my attention needs to go to how much authority do I get. Now, that's not necessarily true for everybody. There are many people who the proper question is, how do I gain the capacity to meaningfully act? And they don't need any help <laughs> being exposed to risk because that happens every day. Right. Uh, but for me, I have to disproportionately and far more than I naturally would choose vulnerability and risk. 
What has that looked like practically for you, if you'd be willing to share? Uh, yeah, well, gosh, many, uh, there's many different layers. Um, one is, um, I mean, let me start with a, a simple one. I, I speak a lot about a third of my life and, and work these days is speaking and I speak to different audiences every time. And that means I can reuse material. So somebody who preaches every Sunday has to come up with something new every week, which I cannot imagine doing. I get to basically take the same material um, because I've found that it's helpful and reuse it. The problem is that isn't much of a risk. I kind of know which jokes work. I know which slide to show, you know, and so I've decided that every time I speak, I'm going to take a risk. Uh, I, I actually ask myself as I'm preparing every single talk, what's the, the risk I'm taking that I've never taken before here? Um, that could be a personal disclosure that is now appropriate to share that I might never have shared. That's a sometimes not the right thing to do, but sometimes it is. It could be a new way of presenting something. It could be uh, tonight, uh, you and I are going to be at an event where I'm going to be speaking and I'm going to put a song in that I've never tried uh, singing this song at this spot in a talk and we'll see how it goes. I don't know. Um, so there's, there's this sort of uh, pattern of asking myself every day, what risk am I taking? Um, I think about it in terms of travel, I try to use my discretionary time and funds to go to places where nobody knows who I am, where I have very little authority and where I'm exposed to a, a lot of risk. And very broadly, that means I try to travel to places that are materially poor. That's um, refreshing. Yeah. And I think of it as uh, the difference between tourism and pilgrimage. So when we, when we're a tourist, we go somewhere that will make us feel great. Like check into a great hotel where they'll t treat you like royalty, go see these amazing buildings or, you know, go live in Paris for three days and pretend you're Parisian or whatever. So that's what tourists do. What pilgrims do is they take a risk and go somewhere where they believe there's something sacred that they don't have and that they need. And I think for, for those of us who are, live in the affluent West, a huge destination of pilgrimage needs to be the places where people are materially poor. And we have to go, not as tourists, not asking to be taken special care of, though people will be very generous and hospitable always, um, but saying, I need something uh, from what people know who live with this kind of vulnerability every day that I will never have if I stay at home. So I try to balance my kind of discretionary travel. Uh, we do some tourist type things and take vacations, but we also try to do pilgrimages. And the interesting thing about what you're saying is you're, you're not going there per se with a heart to serve and make a difference in them, but they have something to offer you and that's their authority that is exactly. pouring into pouring into your vulnerability. This is the problem with a lot of these service trips or mission trips is the premise of them is I have something that those poor people need. You know, I can help in some way. But that actually reinforces the very pattern that is keeping them poor, which is the idea that I've got a lot of authority and they have a lot of vulnerability. We've got to flip it. Uh, I really think, especially any short piece of travel. Uh, it's a little more complex if you're going to spend your whole life uh, in a situation of material need. There you should be going with some capacity to serve, I think. Um, but, but these short-term trips that are, that are allegedly about us helping 
are the worst thing you could possibly do for the dignity of people who need to find out that they actually have something that I need. They have capacities I don't have. I need to be vulnerable. They need to have authority. That's how actually you, you uh, alleviate poverty is give people a sense of themselves as having capacity to act. And one way you can do that is as someone who comes from a very privileged position, come and put yourself at their feet and say, I need to learn from you. Tell me what you know. Pray for me. Uh, and and uh, open yourself up to risk alongside. Wow, that's that's redefining missions. <laughs> There's so many implications about everything that we're talking about. Um, my mind's going in a thousand different directions, but we <laughs> need to wrap up, and uh, hopefully we can speak again. But I, I want to just quote you in Culture Making, and you wrote, We are not here to change the world, generally speaking. Indeed, the good news is the world is already changed in a specific and astonishing way. What does that mean? <laughs> this is the the heart of what's good about the gospel, good about the good news. It's not about us. Uh, we have such kind of ridiculous ambitions, I think. I mean, in one way, they're not ridiculous. We're meant to rule and reign. Um, but, but in our sort of vain imagination of the difference we're going to make, we can miss out on the real story, which is that God himself entered into the world where the image had been lost and in, into our own lives, full of idolatry, full of injustice, um, whether we are perpetrators or victims. And God has rescued us from all that. And God has set in motion this process of cultural transformation, which is the spreading of the gospel through the world, through history, deepening as it goes. Uh, we discover more and more of it, just like with that glass of wine where you discover more and more of that grape in the in the wine we drank at the Lord's table. We taste over time more and more of what God's done. Um, and it's all God's doing, not ours. And that's incredibly good news uh, for those of us who want to be our own little gods. It's so much better than that. That is good news. Well, Andy, thank you very much for taking time to talk with me today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.